0: This is Saving Grace, living in light of God's love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world
1: committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. You would likely agree with me that it's easy to love those who love us, those who are like us. But Jesus said, love your enemy. But what if someone has badly hurt us or those we love? Jesus said to love them. Well, how do we do that? Last week, our guest talked about the gift of humility inside of grace. Well, today, Scott shares another gift inside of grace that will help us to love even our enemies. Scott Pollock is the lead pastor of Faith Bible Church of the Woodlands and author of the booklet, Grace, Simple, Profound. At the end of our podcast, we'll tell you how to download a free copy. But let's listen now as Pastor Pollock tells us how to love our enemies.
0: How much would you pay for a pound of sugar? How much would you pay for a pound of sugar? There was a couple in East Texas a long time ago who had been married for 40 years, happily married or normally married, whatever you want to call it, The husband, after 40 years, got really upset with his wife over the price that she paid for a pound of sugar. So angry that it caused a rift in their relationship, and that rift began to grow over the next few months until, in a drastic move, he actually took a saw and cut their house in half and moved his half to the edge of their property. Boarded up the holes on either side so that she could live in her half of the house. He could live in his. East Texas, it happened. Um, They lived to the end of their marriage, normally, right? Um, How much would you pay for a pound of sugar? I don't know if a pound of sugar is worth it, but there is a lot of ungrace in relationships. If we could create a word that stands for the opposite of what God is teaching us through the Scriptures, what he's given us in the cross of Jesus, a lot of ungrace, right? Right? And it can become very, very poisonous, very, very deadly. We don't even know. It was March 18th, 1937 in Rusk County, East Texas, that New London High School, um, which replaced uh, just regular London, old London, um, they had 600 students in school that day, March 18th. It was about 310, about 10 minutes away from the dismissal of every class. 600 students and teachers on there, and they didn't know it, but underneath their newly built school building, one of the most um, technologically advanced in the whole country in 1937, an um, odorless, colorless, invisible natural gas was leaking into the building and had been leaking all day. This is about 3 10 p.m., again, 10 minutes from dismissal that we believe it was a a shop teacher who turned on an electric sander. Um, Eyewitnesses outside of the school say that the newly built school building walls bulged out, and then the entire ceiling lifted hundreds of feet in the air in a ball of fire. Um, 295 students and teachers died in New London, one of the three greatest tragedies in Texas history after the Um, Texas City thing in 1947, and in the hurricane in Galveston in 1900, it was a massive, massive thing. It sent a block of concrete that crushed a car through the air two miles away. It was terrible, terrible tragedy. It was only weeks later, weeks after New London, Texas, 1937, March, that worldwide people began adding... An odorizer to natural gas so that we can smell it now when it's leaking. You have that rotten egg smell, that sulfur smell. That happened two, three weeks after New London worldwide. First in Texas, America, then it spread worldwide because nobody wanted that sort of tragedy to occur in their hometown, in their house, at their school. An odorless, colorless poison, right? Could that be true? of ungrace? When you tell these two stories, Scott, they're kind of unrelated, aren't they? Uh, Are they? Is ungrace, that kind of atmosphere, is it an odorless and colorless poison that's infecting all of our relationships, our marriage, our friendships, everywhere we go? Is there a level? Could there be a level of ungrace in our life that's really, really affecting our relationships? There are... um, tons of stories in, in every single person in this room that could attest to the fact that uh, bitterness, resentment, anger, and some of the stuff Jessica was talking about in the video, that is alive in almost every relationship. What is the answer to that? Is that the way God wants us to live? Do we just spend our time managing around that and uh, keeping a short mental list of subjects we don't bring up, people we don't mention, things we don't say, to keep and maintain a level Uh, Of interaction with people? I don't think that's what God wants for us, but it's true in most of our relationships, true in some of mine, right? What what would be God's answer? Big question Where is there ungrace in your life today? Where is there ungrace in your relationships? And what would be God's answer to that? We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 5, very, very well known passage. In fact, it's known by um, lots of people outside of the church, lots of people outside of Christianity. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse forty-three. If you want your, ha, open your Bibles to there. We'd look, encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, pick one up in the foyer. years. our gift to you, uh, on the way out, either outside doors or anywhere there on the on the rock wall on the um, little desks. There's Bibles there. Take one or or more as a gift for you or your family, or whatever. Um, but Matthew chapter four. If you go onto a secular university campus, almost worldwide. You ask two questions if you're brave enough. Hey, are you familiar with Jesus? If they say yes, the next question would be, what would you or how would you summarize Jesus' teaching? Simple. Um, Lots of people have done that. Uh, Tony Campolo has been on a campaign to ask questions like that on secular university campuses and others. Um, Three words is the typical answer. Okay? Um, And it's not do not judge. That's what most people say, right? Do not judge. That's not it. Are you familiar with Jesus? Yes. How would you summarize Jesus' teaching? Three words right in our text. Love your enemies. That's what people say. That's what people know about Jesus. And it's true. He said it in this text today. One of the most famous sermons that he gave, probably repeatedly. Um, But what does he mean by that? Where did he get that from? Why does he want us to do that? That sounds pretty radical. Um, what he describes in this text is pretty fantastic. It's a little beyond our reach, actually, in many ways, and so that's why I'd love to study it with you. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses. This is Jesus talking. All of these words in my Bible are in red. That means they're special. Um, Jesus said them. Okay, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Back to verse 43. You've heard that it was said, I want you to know Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first in our New Testament was written largely to a Jewish audience. Not exclusively but largely Jewish. There's lots of reasons why we know that. The language used inside the Gospel of Matthew, there are lots of Hebrewisms, lots of Hebrew words um, that are not explained, that are not translated, like maybe the Gospel of John where he translates those kinds of words. Matthew is written largely to a Jewish audience. Another reason we like that and think that way is there are five major discourses of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew. That means five big sections of red letters that Jesus is speaking. We think that the author did that in order to relate to a Jewish audience who um, magnified the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch in our Bible, okay? First five books of the Old Testament are the most important for the Jew um, at Jesus' day. And Moses was his most important prophet. In order to communicate the gospel of Jesus, the fulfillment of all those prophecies, actually the prophet like Moses that was coming but even greater... We think that he wrote it in five discourses to mirror the five books of Moses. This is the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, and the most popular. starts with the Beatitudes, right? And then in verse 21 of chapter 5, he begins to do these little things that he challenges Jewish theology. Five times he will say, you have heard it said, or you have heard it written, that this, but I say to you this. So he's challenging the popular theology of the day and he's making sure that it's thoroughly biblical because it wasn't they were misunderstanding they were using the old testament as a way of organizing steps to take to earn your righteousness with god to earn your way to heaven and as we've studied in our grace study that's never how god intended it to be you cannot earn heaven by good works not in a thousand lifetimes of good works You cannot deserve God's forgiveness of you. That's why Jesus went to the cross and died and rose from the dead. He paid the penalty that all of us deserve. And when we put our trust in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, God gives us salvation as a gift. It's a gift of grace. Our works are important, but they don't earn our salvation. They flow out of our salvation. And yes, God wants us to be holy and to live like he wants us to because that's the best life for us. They don't earn our way. They flow out of it. Also, you can be secure in that relationship, not because of your completing a standard of holiness or walking the straight and narrow so that you're staying in and not out, but you can be secure in that relationship because of the power of God to keep you there. Yes, He wants you to walk the narrow road because that's where holiness is. That's the perfect will of our God for you. You can also be assured of your salvation. You can know that you're saved. And it's not arrogant, it's not presumptuous, but it's based on the promise of God in your life. These things we've been asking, and then last week we talked about humility, the gift of humility inside the gift of grace. It levels the playing field of us all. All of us are beggars at God's door. None of us are better than the other. None of us are more wise. Yes, we have more education maybe than somebody else. But on the level playing field, we are all the same. And so the gift of grace that rescued us gives us this standard, this starting place of great humility. We ask some big questions, right? Can you you handle when somebody else is praised and you're forgotten? That's a big humility question. That's hard. Are you open to challenge and questioning? How about inside your marriage? How about your character? How about your parenting? Are you open to somebody to talk to you about that? That's a big test of humility, okay? Can you handle jealousy and comparison? We asked those kind of questions last week. Today we're going to look at another of the gifts inside the gift of grace by looking at what Jesus says about love and hate. Okay, look at verse 43 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbor comes right from Leviticus chapter 19. Everybody knew that. You all know that. That's easy, right? Love your neighbor. But what the Jews had done in the time of Jesus, they, they've taken that and extrapolated the opposite out of it, which was not in the scriptures. You are to love your neighbor. That's easy, pretty much for the most of us, especially if we can define who our neighbor is, Right? someone who looks exactly like me and does all the same things that I do. Um, He he snores only if I snore, uh, and she doesn't snore if I don't snore, okay? And she loves the same things I do, and he, he likes the same sports I do. If we can define our neighbor, it's easy to love our neighbor, okay? But the Jews and Jesus, they said, and you gotta hate your enemies. Jesus challenged that because it's not biblical. You can't find that in the Old Testament. And so he said, listen, I say to you something different. I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. This word enemy is pretty harsh, isn't it? I mean, I don't call many people my enemy. I don't throw around, uh, go around throwing that word around often, you know? Oh, hi, uh, John. Great to see you. Enemy, right? Then we walk off and just don't turn our backs to each other. I don't do that often. I don't know if you do. That's a harsh word, right? Um, That conjures up... um, Feelings of wartime to me. So when, he, when Jesus says to love your enemies, this is the question that I hear Jesus asking. How can you, Scott, put love into action in a war? That's the, what I hear him say. How can you put love into action in a war, in difficult relationships? I want you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That sounds maybe easy for us in our relative safety and security here. How could you preach this message to um, a room full of Jews in Munich, Germany in 1941? 1947. How could you do that? How could you tell a bunch of people like that to love their enemies? Can you imagine? That's what Jesus said to the Jews. It's much more like that than like us. You understand the Jews were constantly oppressed at the time of Jesus by the Romans, okay, before them by the Persians, the Medo-Persians, before them by the Assyrians, before them by the Babylonians, before them by the Egyptians, before them by somebody else. They were constantly bullied by some other nation who ruled over them. And Jesus is looking at them, the Jewish leaders in all of his country, and he's saying, I tell you, love your enemies. That's a crazy thing. How do you do that? Jesus makes it clearer as the Gospel of Matthew goes on. I want to take you to another passage in Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18 will also be up on your screen, not the whole thing, but Matthew chapter 18, um, starting in verse 15, is really, really powerful. He starts to talk about what do you do if a brother sins against you, somebody wounds you, somebody hurts you in some way. How do you move through that? What do you do? Okay, you got some options there. You can be Count of Monte Cristo. Right, you can do what Edmund Dantes did. You know that story? Here's Edmund Dantes, who uh, on the day of his wedding is um, savagely sort of turned over by his four best friends, betrayed, wrongfully imprisoned for a very, very long time. His fiance goes away with someone else, one of these guys, everything falls apart, right? Do you remember the story? So a guy helps him escape, and then he builds his life back up, builds another character, builds another name, gets very famous, gets very rich. Why does he do all that? What's the point? To move back into the lives of those four men who betrayed him. And why? For what reason? For revenge. For revenge. That's why he did it all. That's what Edmund Dantes's whole life was about after that moment. The sad part of the book is after he gets it, doesn't really work for him, does it? So you can do that if somebody wounds you. You can go the Count of Monte Cristo route. You can also do the Miserables route, the Les Mis novel written by Victor Hugo. You can do that route too, right? That's a different one. So here's Jean Valjean, two four six zero one. I'm not going to sing it. Don't even think about it. Okay. Um, he's in hard labor prison, seven years for stealing a piece of bread to feed his dying nephew. He gets several more years, over a decade more, for trying to escape. 20 years hard labor, stealing a loaf of bread. Okay? His nemesis in the novel is Javert, the uh, overseer of his group, and he finally gets paroled, but he breaks his parole, and in this intricate story, and Javert is hunting him. And later, in the in the movie during the French Revolution in Paris, um, Jean Valjean has Javert in his clutches, right? He can finally do to Javert without any consequences what Javert's been trying to do to him. He can end it all. What does he do? He rescues him. He saves him. In this wonderful act of love acted out inside of a war, literally a war, Javert, who only sees black and white, who only sees ungrace, it ruins him. And at the end of his story, he's on the bridge over the river Seine, not being able to understand what Valjean did to him. And he jumps off because his whole world is crumbling with this gift of love inside of war. How do you do that? Matthew chapter 18 offers a wonderful example. Jesus says, this is how you treat a brother or sister who's wounded you. You forgive them, and you walk through these steps. And then Peter says, how many times am I supposed to forgive him? Seven times? Because that's what the rabbis teach, and that sounds really, really merciful. That's like a lot. He says, no, uh, 70 times seven times. So Peter says, okay, 490 then, right? Oh, no, you're 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 not getting my point, okay? Let me tell you a story. This is what he says. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, but since he did not have the means to repay. We'll stay there for a second. 10,000 talents, that doesn't mean anything for us. A talent is a a system of measurement of money. Um, you um, You may like to know that a talent was worth about 15 years' wages. 15 years of a wage, and he owed the king 10,000 talents. That's 150,000 years of wage. I did some math. At 60,000 uh, per year annual salary, that comes to the grand total of $9 billion. $9 billion. Okay? And so, going back to this story, there's a king who wanted to settle accounts. He found a slave that owed him $9 billion. The Jews and the Greeks didn't even have a term for billion, okay? It was an inconceivable amount of money. 150,000 years' wages, right? Who can possibly pay that back? And that's the point. That's the point. There is a king who gathered together slaves who owed him something. Nine billion dollars. And he says, I want it. And the guy says, have patience with me. Be merciful. I'll pay you back. And he says, no, you won't. So he threw him in prison and he sold his wife and kids. And he pleaded for mercy. And it says the king felt compassion on him. So he released him from all of his debt and forgave him. Nine billion dollars. Okay? That very same guy, freshly out of prison. What does he do? Did he go throw a $9 billion party and celebrate his freedom? No. He goes to another slave, verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So that's about three and a half months' worth of salary, which equals about $17,000. He had just been forgiven $9 billion. And he goes out to find another guy that owes him 17000 and he demands that he pays him back and beats him. Okay? That's Jesus' story. Does that turn your stomach? Does it say to you, that's ridiculous? I would never do that. That's what you're saying, right? I would never do that. That's what I'm saying. $9 billion? Man, that's awesome. I'm canceling all the debts of everybody that owes me something, right? That's what, that's what I would say if that were you, wouldn't it? But now let's apply that to actual wounds, actual debt, forgiveness. You see, back to Matthew chapter 5, it all has a point. And the point is that forgiveness is based on an event. Forgiveness is actually a process that's based on an event. And what's the event? Forgiveness is a process based on an event, and the event is the king canceling your debt, a debt that you couldn't possibly repay. What is that event? That event is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ, when God himself died in your place, canceling a debt of sin that you could never repay. That's the center of Christian forgiveness. That's why and how Jesus could say, I want you to love your enemies. We could say to Jesus, do, do you do that? Jesus, well, you want to ask us to do things that you do, right? Do you love your enemies? Answer, absolutely. Enemy number one, me. That's what Romans 5 tells us a couple weeks ago. We saw that, right? Because of our sin and rebellion against a holy and righteous, infinitely righteous God, we are considered enemies. We were ungodly, selfish, selfish enemies of God, separated from Him when He found us. Does God love His enemies? Of course He does. He loves me. He loves you. And so if that's who God is, then He wants us to be like God. That's why in Matthew 5, He says, so that you may, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. That phrase in Greek means to demonstrate that you are a son that you are a daughter of your father to show the characteristics of being a daughter and a son which means to act like him to love your enemies because God loves his enemies because he loves you and he loves me what is love acted out in war I think it looks a lot like forgiveness and I know when we mention that word A lot of you in here are thinking, and we're done. Thank you very much. Forgiveness, I know exactly what you're going to say from here. From here on out, I'm thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch or what football team is playing right now, where I'm going to nap, whatever. I get it, okay? Um, Lots of forgiveness talks, right? I'm not trying to just give you another one, but I'm trying to point out that forgiveness is a gift inside of the gift of grace, and I think you underestimate it. I think I do too. Forgiveness is a process based on the, an event. I want you to understand that Christians forgive not out of the goodness of their heart. They don't. Christians do not forgive out of the goodness of their heart. They forgive because they have been forgiven. And you may say, oh, okay, hold on, Scott, I, I'm following you. Wait a second. But somebody has done something to me. that's far, far worse than anything that I've ever done to anybody else or anything that I've ever done to God. I've lived a pretty clean life. I lived pretty good. I grew up in the church, kind of walked the straight and narrow, except for some of those college years. We don't want to talk about that. And uh, everything in my life has been okay. I've not done really terrible things. But this person who's abused me, who has used me, who has wounded me, punched me in the face, either physically or emotionally. i got a knife in my back. I've got all of this stuff. You're not telling me that their wounding of me is somehow lesser than my wounding of God. In comparison, they don't make sense. And so I I'm not sure I want to forgive somebody else because God has forgiven me. It just doesn't line up. And I would say to you, I understand, but you're mistaken. Because you're comparing your relative goodness to the relative goodness of the person who hurt you. That's the wrong comparison. What we are meant to do is to compare our relative goodness to the infinite holiness of God. And that difference is staggering. You will always underestimate that. And if God forgave you that, then how little would it be to forgive someone else who wounded you even dastardly so on the earth? That's the point of Jesus' parable. That's the point of the story. I want you to demonstrate that you are sons and daughters of God. By loving your enemies, by putting love into action, which I think looks a lot like forgiveness. So how would you define forgiveness? What would you say if somebody asked you? I don't know what forgiveness is. Can you define it for me? Would it be about you? Would it be about the person who wounded you? Would it be about your relationship? Would it be about Jesus? Would it be about God? Would it be about feeling good, mental, gymnastics? What would it be about? Some sort of receipt, uh, record keeping? How would you define forgiveness? Forgiveness. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, defines it like this, love practiced among people who love poorly. I like that. Love practiced among people who love poorly. What he's saying is you can't forgive if everything's perfect. You forgive in a place that's dirty and raw and hurting, hurtful. And so when people love poorly, to love like Jesus loved over the top of that looks a lot like forgiveness. I've told you that I think forgiveness is a choice, or a process, rather. Forgiveness is a process based on an event that Christians forgive, not out of the goodness of their heart, but forgive because they've been forgiven. What about this definition? Forgiveness is a choice to release someone from a debt that they owe you. To release someone from a debt. Do you know that when you've been hurt, okay, so your spouse lied to you, Okay. Um, your best friend stabbed you in the back in college, okay? Um, someone borrowed some money from you and said that they would pay back, but never have. You've never seen them again, okay? Someone ran into your brand new car in the HEV parking lot, okay? Whatever it is, someone mentally abused you, emotionally abused you, someone physically abused you. Someone raised you in an environment that was crippling for you, and you grew up in the shadow of a larger shadow, And your whole life has been defined by that. Those wounds against you are a debt that that person owes you. In reality, it's true. Forgiveness is a choice to release someone from that debt. And I know what you're thinking. Again, you're saying, Scott, you make it sound so simple. It's not simple. It ain't simple. It's hard. You're never going to feel like it. It's terrible. That's why I say it's a process. Forgiveness is a process because you don't just forgive someone and release them from the dead and then walk on in your happy-go-lucky life, right? That's not, that's not reality, okay? You choose to release someone from a wound, and then you have to remember that you chose do that. And then again, you have to constantly remember that you chose to do that. And you can remember that you chose to do that for a long, long, long time. Because let's be honest with each other, there is no forgetting in forgiveness, is there? There is no forgetting. That's ridiculous. You can't forgive and forget. When a knife's sticking out of your back, good luck forgetting that. Okay? Good luck sleeping on your back. Okay? That ain't happening. Nobody forgets. The deepest wounds of our life, you can't forget those. Elizabeth Elliot, the famous wife and author and missionary of Jim Elliot, right? Later in her life, after she was a widow, she was done wrong by, by a mission agency and it was very, very public. And so she was being interviewed and the interviewer the, the, asked her a question, um, this mission agency did you very, very wrong. How do you feel about that? What's that, what's that like? You know, her response is one of my favorites ever. She says, yes, um, I feel wronged by the mission agency, but I distinctly remember forgetting all about that. What she has said was, I released them from that debt, and now I'm in the process of remembering that I released them. There is no forgetting. There's a choice to to not remember. There's a choice to not dwell on it. What are the other options for you when someone wounds you? When someone wounds you deeply, what are the other options? Let's go through them because I think there's only a few. What about retribution, repayment? Is that really possible for you? When somebody wounds you emotionally and takes some chunk out of your heart, is there any way that they can repay that? I don't think so. Retribution sounds good to us. We say, ah, he uh, took my favorite uh, kitchen knife. I want my favorite kitchen knife back. Okay, he can give you your favorite kitchen knife back, but what about the relationship that was broken down? Is there any restitution, retribution, repayment there? No, most of the time, repayment is completely impossible. Somebody abuses you, says words and calls you names, there's no repaying that. If you're seeking repayment, let me ask you a big question, how's that working for you? Is it working out? Repayment's not a good option because most of the time it's completely impossible. Okay, here's one, how about revenge, right? We can do the Edmond Dantes thing, how about revenge? I wanna get them back. They hurt me, I wanna make them hurt, okay? How's that working for you? You will discover what Alexander Dumas meant in the Count of Monte Cristo and what Edmond Dantes experienced. That revenge wears the mask of power but it's completely powerless in reality. It won't heal what's broken in you. only makes it worse, actually. Revenge is impotent, completely intimate. I tell you, my, my, my favorite one is resentment. That's where I live. You know what resentment means? To feel all over again, to live in the past, to live in those conversations, in those situations and circumstances. And I Obsess over those and I resent some people in my life, right? I struggle with that. I can be honest and tell you, it ain't working for me at all, okay? How's it working for you? Resentment becomes bitterness pretty quickly, okay? It's anger that rots on you. So how is uh, retribution and repayment working for you? How's revenge? How about resentment? What are your other options? To shrivel up and go away? In resentment and bitterness, that's not a good option. God doesn't want you to do that. The option that he provides for us, listen, is an event that is so magnanimous, so ineffable, so infinite, that out of that great gift, we can move towards others and release them. Forgiveness is a process based on an event. And it's an event that changed everything and that should change your life. It's very, very simple um, when Paul states it like he does in Ephesians chapter four. He says this, be kind, tender-hearted towards one another, and forgive each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You see, Christians don't forgive somebody else out of the goodness of their heart. They forgive because they have been forgiven. And in so doing, they're acting like Jesus. They're acting like God does, okay? Forgiveness is powerful. I know you've got some questions. How do you forgive someone, Scott? You say it's a choice. H- how do you do that, okay? Um, I think understanding the point of forgiveness is the first step. The point is not to just release you and make you feel better. The point is not to... Uh, enable somebody else, I know that's what you're thinking too. If I just forgive someone and they don't repent and confess, I'm enabling them, Scott. I'm, I'm, I'm helping them hurt somebody else in the future, okay? I understand. I did that to be funny. I don't really do that. That's, that's awkward. But a lot of people, I, I, I understand I felt the same way before. If I just forgive them out of hand, doesn't that give them permission to just hurt somebody else, right? Right? I understand what you're thinking, but forgiveness is based on faith, on faith that God is a better justice maker than I am, that God is more involved and more interested in justice in the ways that he can bring it about than I am, and so when I choose to forgive someone and release them from the debt, it is a very faith-based decision very faith-based. So, Scott, does a person have to repent or confess to you in order for you to forgive them? I wish it were so every time, but no. No. Biblically, no. Some people aren't alive anymore. Some people will never say that. Some people, it would not be ever wise for you to have a conversation with them or be in their presence. So is it possible for you to forgive someone who doesn't ask for your forgiveness? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That may be more plentiful than the opposite, unfortunately. But to choose to release someone out of what you have been forgiven and for the sake of restoring relationship when possible and when wise is the whole point. To choose to forgive someone. What about uh, your forgiveness with God? You ever thought about that? You know, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, everybody loves that. You confess your sins to the Father, and He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So does that mean that you have to ask God's forgiveness every time you step out of bounds in order to make sure that you're still in? You don't want to die and have an unconfessed sin. That means trouble. You may not be good then, right? No, that's not what that text is about. You don't have to live on a tight wire Balancing, making sure that you confess every single thing. God knows that text is absolutely true, but it's to keep your fellowship clean with God, to keep your relationship near and close. God has forgiven you past, present, and future in Jesus Christ. If You put your faith in him. So confessing to God keeps your relationship with God open and clean. Just like an earthly friendship. When you're honest with each other, you have the best kind of relationship. Okay, How about... Asking someone else to forgive you. So we've talked about when you've been hurt and wounded by somebody else. What about when you do the wounding? Okay? I don't know about you, but uh, that's not very often for me. Okay? Um, liar, liar, right? I am an often forgiven and sometimes forgiving person. Okay? I do a lot of hurting. Some of it um, is completely inexcusable and completely unforeseen by me. It's sad, but sometimes I do it perhaps knowing what's coming. Most of the time I hope and think that I do it without meaning to cause harm, but I wound other people. I wound other people in my family. I've wounded my wife before by things that I've said. What happens when you wound somebody else? How do you ask for forgiveness? And here's a fascinating point that so many people don't do this very well. Okay? When I do premarital counseling, which is really the only kind of counseling that I do, it's the only kind I'm really good at. I don't do crisis counseling because I'm not trained. I'm not great at that. But I spend a whole session on people uh, with, with couples that are getting married on forgiveness. And we just ask them, I just ask them, how do you forgive? How if somebody asked an apology from you, you know, or asked for your forgiveness? And terrible answers to those questions. Okay? Here's my favorite one. I love this. When somebody's asking for forgiveness, is what they say, I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I said. That's my favorite. Let me translate that in another words. I'm sorry if you're an idiot, okay? That's what, (laughs) that's what the person just said because I, I said something and you were the one who were hurt by it so it's your fault. I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I said. That's my all time favorite, okay? I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I did. I'm sorry that, I'm sorry if, I'm sorry but, okay? All these kinds of things. Those are terrible apologies, terrible, okay? It's very, very simple to do things biblically two steps, two real simple steps. The first step is to admit what you did, even if you don't fully understand it. Don't explain, don't justify, don't excuse. Here it is. I can see that I've hurt you. Maybe that's all you know sometimes, okay? You may say, I would love for you to explain that to me in the future, because I just thought you bought a pound of sugar. I'm not sure where all this comes from, all right? Um, I can see that I hurt you by what I said to you. I can see that my actions have deeply wounded you. I can see that that decision has wounded you. End of story, that's step one. Step two, one single sentence with a question mark at the end. Will you please forgive me, question mark. That's it. It's a question. It's putting the ball in the other person's court so that they might be able to choose to release you from the debt that you owe them. I can see this, I confess, I admit it, I own it. That's the gift that you give the other person because the goal of forgiveness is to regain relationship, to regain the brother or the sister. I can see what I've done. I, I may not fully understand it yet, but I can see that I've hurt you and I want to understand it. I'm not explaining it away, I'm not justifying it, I'm not excusing it, okay? I can see that I've hurt you. Will you please forgive me? Question. And you stop. Stop. And then the choice is up to the other person. Hopefully if that other person is a Christian follower of Jesus because God has forgiven them so much, they will choose to release you. But it's up to them. It's up to them. That is forgiveness. It's simple, but let's be honest. If there's an invisible, uh, tasteless, odorless, poisonous gas in our relationships, everywhere we turn and look, how could forgiveness open the windows and dissipate that gas? I think it's powerful to do so. I think it would be powerful to do so, okay? These kinds of stories find themselves in the Scriptures. One of my favorite ones is the story of Joseph. You know Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, okay? Um, you know his story. He had a hard done by, wasn't he? That was a terrible story, okay? I mean, all he did was a young guy, he uh, had some dreams, and he talked a lot about his dreams, it sounded a bit braggish, I know, but his brothers didn't appreciate it, okay? He was just explaining the things that God was showing him in his dreams, and his brothers took great offense at it, so much so that they decided, ah, let's kill him, which just seems logical to me, right? Yeah? Isn't <laughs> that is overreaction? Just a bit? Huh? Yeah? Anybody? Okay, and so they throw him in a pit, then they're eating lunch, which is the crazy part for me throw him in a pit. Hey, you hungry? Yeah, me too. Egg salad today? Okay, what's the deal? All right. And so he's in the pit. Some slave drivers come by and they're like, let's make some money. So they pull him out of the pit. They sell him into slavery, right? And he goes to Egypt, the bottom of Egypt, the bottom of the prison. He finally, God begins to work. God begins to work. There's nothing really negative said about Joseph in the scriptures. He's a pretty squeaky clean guy, okay? Okay. One by one, little by little, story by story, God raises them up from the bottom of Egypt to the top of Egypt, number two, just under Pharaoh. There's a famine in the land. You know the story. So all of his family comes into Egypt looking for food, and he sees them, but they don't recognize him. And he lays a little trap, gives them some food. They come back, puts a little trap on his blood brother, full blood brother, to see if they are still willing to sacrifice a brother for their own skin. And so the trap is sprung. Benjamin's on the chopping block. What are you going to do, brothers? And they say, we can't lose Benjamin. Our dad will die if we lose Benjamin. Take my life instead. No, no, take my life instead. And finally, Joseph understands that they have changed. That things are better. Do you know what he does then, beginning of chapter 45? Fascinating. I love this part. Goes back into his room, into his chamber, shuts the door. And he weeps so loudly that news reaches Pharaoh himself. Everybody at the top echelon of Egypt is worried about Joseph. He is wailing in his room. What has gone wrong? What has happened? We can't go in. He told us nobody to come in. He is wailing bitterly. Do you know what that sound is? That was the sound of a man forgiving. It's hard. It stinks. It never feels good. It feels a bit like enabling. It feels a bit like injustice. It feels like somebody else is getting away with it. But because of the event of the cross, God has forgiven us a debt we could never, ever repay in a 150,000 lifetime. And out of that great bank of grace, God allows us to give grace and forgiveness to others that wound us. That has a powerful opportunity to transform your relationships for your marriage, for your family, for your work, for your friendships, and heal the ungrace that is so alive and well in all of our relationships. Yeah?
1: You have been listening to Pastor Scott Pollock. What a great lesson reminding us of the great debt Christ paid for the forgiveness of our sins while we were His enemies. Our choice to release someone from a debt that they owe us, from a wound they caused us, is the gift of forgiveness found in grace. We hope you'll share this podcast along with Scott's free e-booklet with a friend that may be struggling with forgiveness. We invite you to download the booklet, Grace Simple Profound, at gsot.edu forward slash simplegrace. That's gsot.edu forward slash simplegrace. Download your copy today. So glad you tuned in. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost.
0: You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of
1: Great School of Theology or its leadership.